listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. You know, there's a lot of stories that revolve around two central characters. In the biz, they refer that to as a two-hander. What you do on your weekends, I mean, you might have a different definition of a two-hander. But for (laughs) our intents and purposes, we're talking about stories that feature heavily two individuals, two actors who have to carry the picture on their backs. And that can be difficult because you're really relying on the chemistry, on the charisma, on the appeal of those two individuals. By the way, there's only two people on this review, so we get to put our money where our mouths are. That's right. You better be extra charming, TC, because this is all on us. What? (laughs) Uh, If you don't like the sound of our two voices, that's too bad, because that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to (laughs) get. That's it. Ordinarily, we would have more reviewers on this, but, you know, it happens. So now we have a two-hand review, and that's fine. I am totally looking forward to having a conversation with my good friend T.C. DeWitt. And I'm happy to be here with you, Marco. I will be the best sidekick you could ask for in a two-person review. Oh, oh, oh no, no. This is an ensemble, sir. Oh. It's no star co-star thing. Both of our names are above it's, the title. Uh, Farley and Spade, Laurel and Hardy kind of thing. Absolutely. Starsky and Hutch. You yeah. know, that kind yeah, of there thing. We go. It's a duo. Batman and Robin. Years, I'm sure there's another duo out there we're not thinking of. Frick and Frack. You know, the two yeah. stooges. That's go. us. The two stooges. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're here to talk about a brand new independent film called Polygo, which is not exactly a two-hander, but for most of the time it is. And as we said earlier, how you enjoy this film depends a lot on whether you enjoy spending time with these two co-leads. Fortunately, the stars of this film, Ethan Dizon as the titular Polygo and Madison Wolf as Avery, are quite good at handling these scenes together. To kind of get through the synopsis pretty quickly, Polly Go, that is his actual <laughs> name uh, in the role, uh, Polly Go is a child prodigy. Uh, he's a high school senior. He is preparing to enter a prestigious university in the field of artificial intelligence and robotics, and he gets a letter saying that he has been denied entrance into the program. So Polly does what any sensible child prodigy would do. He steals a van, drives 2,000 miles across country uh, to confront the professor of the Shikinjansky Institute and ask him why the hell he is not being admitted into his program because, after all, Polygo is a self-admitted genius and the future of AI and robotics. And, <laughs> of course. by the way, that all happens within like the first five, six minutes of the movie. Uh, this movie wastes no time getting Polly from California to Minnesota where he's going to try to find this reclusive professor. And at that point, the story takes a very different turn and a much different pace. Mm -hmm. Teams up with Avery, who is the daughter of the sheriff who arrests Polly for stealing that van. (laughs) And through the kindness of Midwesterners, 
uh, which people of my own heart, being from Wisconsin myself, they take him into their family for the brief period he might be there. And Avery and Polly develop this odd friendship. She decides to team up with him to help him track down Chicken Jancy, Professor Chicken Dance, Chicken Jancy. <laughs> but they say it like 50 times. So you think I would have got it on the first try? <laughs> Chicken yeah. Jancy. Chicken Jancy. They they really picked the hardest name they could. Chicken Jansky. Mm-hmm. Chuck Chicken Jansky. <laughs> who who's played by Bernard White, who most people might recognize from stuff like Silicon Valley. Uh he's a reclusive professor. Uh he's rarely seen in public. Uh he's by all accounts brilliant and eccentric, and he's so reclusive that his home can only be approached uh by water. He has a lake house somewhere in the Great Lakes region of Minnesota. And Polly, even though he's committed any number of ethical and legal violations to pinpoint the general area where the professor lives, he still doesn't know how to get there. And this is where Avery comes in. They have met earlier in a bait shop. I won't call it a meet cute. It was more of a bump annoyance. Yeah, that's a good way. He's so clearly convinced that he's smarter than everybody. He's kind of an insufferable idiot. And she's a way more down to earth uh, she has her own YouTube channel mm-hmm. where she catches fish. For reasons that I won't get into, she needs money. And so she agrees to take Polly out on the lakes because she knows the area better than anybody mm-hmm. in return for a favor, which I will not reveal. But I thought it was clever. And so he reluctantly agrees, fine, I'll team up with this weird townie and go on a lake and just try to find this fucking house and knock on doors and hopefully not get shot. I mean, I'm really surprised by the number of houses he just walks up to and like knocks on the door. Uh, maybe people are more friendly in the Midwest than in Texas. I don't know. But if I you have a confirm. lake house, I, I'm sure that they are. Uh, but yeah, if, if you have a private lake house and someone comes knocking on your door, it's like, uh, no, <laughs> go away. But that's the thing about Polly, even though he is insufferable, no one ever feels threatened by him. Ethan Dizon kind of makes him quirkily lovable even though he is oftentimes aggravating yeah you say insufferable sort of paints the wrong picture i think you hear that you're probably going to elicit thoughts of zach alfinakis from something like due date <laughs> or hangover or melissa mccarthy from something like identity theft which have similar vibes but because it's two unlikely pair of people teaming up together to accomplish a task right John Candy in Plane, Trains, and Automobiles, right? But Polly is, he's not grating. He's not annoying or yelling. He's just this very dorky, like, I can't exactly call him shy because he's not. He's willing to put himself out there very aggressively without being aggressive in the traditional sense. I think at some point somebody mentions that he's a little on the spectrum, and you kind of get that impression from him. You can see that, yeah. Polly is undeniably brilliant. He's a very, very smart young man. You're right, TC. Insufferable may be the wrong word, but certainly self-entitled. Yes, yeah. Most people, when they get rejected from their preferred school, would just, you know, start waiting for their fallback uh, universities to contact him. But Polly doesn't do that. He's just outraged that he would not be picked. And demands yeah, an answer. Could, I'm going to change the world. How could I be picked for this? I need to find out why. And I think it's really interesting. And, and you're you're the one who actually tipped me off to this. I wasn't aware of it at the time. This is kind of loosely based on a short film uh, from the same director no, and no, writer. No, loosely based about it. 
no loosely based about it. This is a sequel because they show clips of that original short in the opening. Of, sorry, you could go ahead and introduce that this is based on or sequelized. Or no, no, no. It's it's on. no. It's it's a good argument because I I myself am not sure how much of it is a true sequel and how much of that short film is kind of a rough draft because. Uh, it is a short film that was made back in 2012, also starring Ethan Dizon, who's probably like 10 or 12 in this. Mm -hmm. And so it's this rare opportunity to do a movie that has flashbacks to the younger character played by the same actor, separated by an entire decade. Mm -hmm. That short film tells us so much about Polly and how he got to be who he is and how he deals with bullies yep. and how he deals with rivalries from other students who are his equal. And by the end of that 10-minute short film, we've learned a lot about Polly, and he's also learned some very valuable lessons in empathy and humility, all of which he seems to have forgotten <laughs> 10 years later for this movie. But they do recycle some of that original footage, which is a nice part of the prologue yeah. to this new movie. I, I just wondered if, like, Polly, you learned these lessons, buddy. What happened in those 10 years that you forgot them all together? Sometimes it's worth going back and relearning lessons. And while I very, very, very much recommend checking out the short, it's available on YouTube. It's just called Polly. That is the prologue to this. The themes are the same. You just nailed a lot of what the themes are in this movie, Polly Go, which is how does this character deal with bullies? How does he deal with rejection? How does he deal with empathy? And what does he learn from all that? So you're not wrong that this does, in a way, take that short film and expand upon a lot of the themes and ideas. And it is great that this is the same team. This is the same writer-director and actor coming back all these years later that this short film was the senior piece for this writer-director. He graduated with this piece. And he's come back all these years later to tell the story again with Polly. And it's so sweet, the short film itself has a lot of heart and humor to it, and to see that transition into a full feature film was wonderful. It was sweet and adorable, both in the short form and in the long form, and a lot of that goes because our lead is so cute for all his flaws. Yeah, he is likable in spite of everything, and I think it's important to remember that He's basically stalking someone. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> he has used unethical means to find out private information about where this person lives. And he's used illegal means because, of course, Polly's so smart, he could just hack into uh, the uh, mm -hmm. school network and find out the uh, professor's P.O. box. His plan is to go to this small town in Minnesota and sit by that P.O. box because eventually the professor will have to go to the P.O. box. He follows another lead, which takes him to a bait shop where he meets Avery. Avery is really, I think, the big improvement on the short film. Because yes. in the short film, Polly doesn't have anyone to bounce off of. Once those two are on the lake, it's very clear that they are from different worlds. They have different attitudes. They have different life experiences. Mm -hmm. But that five, six-minute prologue that just rocketed us straight through Minnesota, once they get on that lake, the pace just becomes... It takes on the same uh, languor of just drifting down a river as these two kids are just looking for a house and getting to learn about one another and seeing those defenses break down and opening up to one another in ways that they probably have never opened up to anyone before. And I think that's really the heart of the movie for me. Yes, 100%. It is about those two in a boat, quietly on a lake, learning about each other. 
And while other movies might handle that with long, drawn-out, dialogue-heavy, uh, artistic shots of the sun setting and the water rippling, trying to get Terrence Malicky here, there's <laughs> a charm in how this is presented. And the scenes never run long, which is very helpful, that even though they're sitting on a boat moving across a lake, there's enough variety in change within the story that... The pace and the conversation that it never truly got boring, or at least I never felt bored by this movie. I was always engaged by it because they were constantly moving down the river, moving down the lake. You mentioned that the pace changes, the story changes when he gets to Minnesota, which we'll call our main act of the entire movie. There's another change that happens later in the film, which it also takes us in another direction that you don't see coming, which not to say, oh, there's a twist, uh, look out for the twist. But it's a movie that evolves with the characters. It doesn't just pick a note and stay with it. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think so much of that comes down to, as we were saying in the intro, it comes down to the chemistry between Ethan Dizon and Madison Wolf, uh, these two characters who are diametrically opposed to one another. And yet you buy their burgeoning friendship. You buy that eventually they will kind of let their guards down and be honest with one another, you kind of just realize that, you know, he's kind of needed someone like this in his whole <laughs> life. Uh, he's never had someone who can kind of just bust his balls and bring him back down to earth. You definitely get the sense that he needs her more than she needs him. But by the end, we also realize that she also has things she needs to talk about that she can't talk to to anyone else. And it's that really... Uh, familiar uh, character dynamic that I've seen in real life as well as in films where you finally open up to a stranger for no other reason than, hey, I got to talk about this and I'm probably never going to see this person ever again. So there's a safety in that. Yeah. Yeah. There's not that same level of judgment. I'm not disappointing my mm -hmm. parents or my friends or the people in my community. And likewise, he opens up to her because somehow she just gets through his defenses it's it's really charming but as you indicated tc late in the film closer to the third act there's kind of a sharp turn into what i will simply say is genre filmmaking i really thought based on the description of this that this was going to be some kind of wacky road movie you know hijinks ensue as this kid travels across country but like i said he gets to minnesota at record time. the credits are practically still rolling yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it's just like, hey, let's just get you there to Minnesota because it's really about setting up that relationship between Polly and Avery and getting them on the water so that they can spend time together so that when we do get into that final act, they handle the genre elements pretty well. I wish I could tell you more about it because based on that, that might really determine whether you think this is the kind of movie you want to see or not. But I'm not going to, because I think it's worth experiencing. It does feel motivated. I'm not sure how well that final act works, but I think that's just because up until that point, I was enjoying what seemed like a refreshingly low stakes, low concept character piece. And then it becomes kind of something else. Right. It reminded me of Safety Not Guaranteed in the ways that movie is a great indie film that feels low stakes that takes a weird turn not an insane turn this isn't this is the end where the world is over just a just enough of a hairpin turn that had me going oh i wonder where they're going to go with this and like safety not guaranteed this is a great independent film this is a film from someone you've never heard of with people you've never seen before and it's great because 
With the Screener Squad, we watch a lot of obscure films. We watch a lot of movies that I never would have even given this movie a second look, except I'm acquainted with someone who is in the short who recommended this to me, which I recommended to Chris. I love finding new independent films that are good, and this feels like Safety Not Guaranteed, which that was Colin Trevorrow's entry into the film foray that led him to getting Jurassic World and so on and so forth. So what you're saying is we should stop Andrew Knack now before he makes some horrible franchise film. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe (laughs) or not, but I think Andrew does have it in him and has the type of I, the type of director style to craft stories that Kevin Feige would poach to stick on a franchise film. This does feel like someone who could be capable of a much bigger movie because the simplicity of the storytelling proves that he can tell a 90-minute story that doesn't lose the audience, that doesn't get boring. It might surprise the audience. It surprised me that it went the directions it went. Like getting to Minnesota before the credits are even over those choices in the third act. It never threw me off to the point of what the hell. It intrigued me. And that sort of eye for storytelling is the exact sort of thing that is taken from the independent film world and put into major motion pictures, like the Marvel movies. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, there's definitely that era of 90s and early aughts filmmaking where you had up-and-coming filmmakers tell relatively simple stories in few locations with a handful of characters, but with a lot of heart, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. relied on a sort of gentler rhythm, a less plot-driven approach to storytelling that I think in today's sort of blockbuster environment tends to get overlooked, uh, tends to be used just as raw material to make bigger blockbusters, which is why so many of these up-and-coming filmmakers get tapped to do franchise movies. It's like, hey, you're good with character, you're good with rhythm, you know, you can do some genre stuff with a very low budget. Here's what happens when we give you all the toys and all the star power uh, that you could ever hope Sink for. Sink or swim, baby. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you know, there was a time when filmmakers kind of had to move up to that level. Now they're like, with one or two films under your belt, suddenly you could be doing the next Marvel movie. And I'm not sure if that's the right way to go. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But you sink a hole in one at a mini golf course and get plucked for the PGA, you might be ready for it. <laughs> but... You might not be. (laughs) I mean, that may be true, but I think it also means that sometimes you have these interesting uh, filmmakers who haven't really evolved their style yet. Mm -hmm. They're they're kind of learning how to do their job. They're kind of getting, you know, better at what they do, more consistent and kind of building. This does feel like a big step up from that short film. You can see the progression. You can see how he's taken those same core concepts, but creating something new without repeating himself. Everything that was kind of good in that first one is now really good. And it just shows a director learning their craft. And I'm kind of nervous when they get interrupted in the middle of that development and suddenly they're plugged into an existing structure going, hey, we've got a pipeline. We've got a method of doing this. And, you know, we're going to use whatever skill sets you have, but you're going to learn how to make movies our way, which means that going forward, these guys, when they do finally break out of the franchise model, they're kind of using the tricks they've learned from blockbuster cinema rather than independently evolving. I mean, if you look at Scorsese's earlier works like Mean Streets and then see what he does with, say, Goodfellas, and you can see how that 
director has evolved in terms of his style and themes while not abandoning what he was doing before. He's just honed his craft. He's gotten sharper and better. Imagine taking someone like Scorsese two movies into his career and then making him direct a Superman movie. Would he lose what made his voice so essential and so unique at the time? Sure. You want to have a John Watts who went from Cop Car to Spider-Man Homecoming. You don't want a Josh Trank who went from Chronicle to failing at Fan Stick, right? <laughs> there is a gamble in plucking an independent filmmaker and giving them a franchise piece without letting them develop. I'm not saying I want our director here to be plucked to the Marvel world, but... He's not far removed from it because our main actor here is actually in the Spider-Man films with John Watts. So there's a bit of a weird overlap here that could mean this is a director we see in the future taking on bigger projects. But let's hope he goes the way of someone like Sam Raimi, who was allowed to develop over several number of films, or Peter Jackson, who was developed uh, in the indie world before plucked to the blockbuster world. I think he could do it, though. I think he's ready for it. That's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, yeah of and, course, you know, of we've, course. <laughs> we've we've kind of had it, but why don't we go ahead and start moving into our final thoughts? All right, well, there's two of us, so I suppose I'll go first. <laughs> why don't you go first? Uh, I insist. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, sir. Yes. <laughs> this movie is adorable. It's sweet. The main characters are totally likable, even in their flaws, even in what could seemingly be unlikability on its surface or however it's pitched at you. You might hear this and go, oh boy, I've compared this to other movies with Zach Galifianakis or Melissa McCarthy that's grating and painful to watch suffering through dealing with someone you don't like. It's not like that. This is as sweet and as comforting as just sitting on a boat, contemplating your life and the future ahead of you. These two are just trying to catch some muskies while trying to track down a professor. It's simple, low stakes, and relatable because we're all just trying to discover who we are at all points in our lives. I love that I got to see the original short film about this little nine, ten-year-old kid who thinks he's it all figured out, but the world tells him, no, you don't. And now here we are in the present. And once again, as a young adult, he's being challenged and being told, no, you're wrong. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm glad it was recommended to me through a friend. I'm glad that I could at least get Marco to watch it, and I hope that I get some other people to watch it, because there is something special here. A film like this could easily be forgettable, could easily be dull or obnoxious in its indie style. No, I really enjoyed this, and I'm giving this a solid 8 out of 10 cyborg tiger muskies. <laughs> <laughs> well... I do want to thank you for recommending this and for recommending the short film. Yeah, these are the kind of little movies that so often fall through the cracks and they're definitely worth searching out. Uh, I'm not going to make any big promises about this. It's it's small. It's charming. It, it's just a warm, feel-good, coming-of-age story with a couple of quirky characters and some interesting situations it could have easily gone the route of crass road trip, teenage comedy hijinks, and it doesn't do that. This is definitely, it feels like a throwback to the late 90s, early aughts indie scene and is well worth checking out. I do admit that the hairpin turn into genre filmmaking towards the back half of the film kind of threw me a little bit, 
but, you know, it quickly recovers and makes the best of it, given their limited resources and limited budget. For that narrative gamble, I can see why on paper they're like, yeah, we got to throw some things in here that are that have some buzzwords that we can put in reviews and that we can help push algorithms towards the film. Otherwise, it would be a harder film to market if it was just two kids on a boat talking about their feelings. But oddly enough, those were the elements that were most effective to me and that I most enjoyed and were most welcome because I feel like we've been bombarded with genre and blockbuster and horror and sci-fi and fantasy. I love all of that stuff, but there is something to be said about taking a couple of characters and just spending time with them like you, I'm curious to see what uh, this director does next, and I hope that it'll continue to be in this vein, but we'll just continue to push what he already does well and just do it better. I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 collectible plush fish dolls. <laughs> Aww. Uh, well, yeah, no, Marco. I'm actually really surprised that none of us tried to do the Minnesota accent there here because they didn't lay it on thick in the movie, but it was there if you could uh, tune your <laughs> ear into it. It was there. You could hear it in a few voices. I really appreciated that. I, I don't know. I, I think if you do that, it was like, is that a Fargo? Are you doing like a Fargo accent? No, it's not a Fargo <laughs> accent. Accents get really weird and screwy in the Midwest depending on how, you know, east or north you are you know it could suddenly like wow you sound like a canadian you sound vaguely like you're from pittsburgh i mean it's it's kind of wacky i can confirm i can confirm is that a chicago accent (laughs) 